Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Hugh Hodges. He teaches in the Cultural Studies Department at Trent University. He has written extensively on African and West Indian music, poetry, and fiction. His new book is The Fascist Groove Thing, A History of Thatcher's Britain in 21 Mixed Tapes, which is published by our friends at PM Press. Hugh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. A pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Hugh, before we dive into your new book, um, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what you've written about Bob Marley. Uh, I once took a university course on Rastafarianism and reggae, and one of my favorite books, uh, A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James, is about Mm -hmm. Bob Marley. Um, So this is an area of interest for me. What have you written about Bob Marley, Hugh? So Bob Marley was a key figure in uh, well, my my doctoral work, Mm -hmm. uh, which then wound up becoming... Uh, the book Soon Come, Jamaican Spirituality, Jamaican, Jamaican Poetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my my interest in him in the first instance was uh, as a poet, um, as a, a sung poet. Yes. Um, the, the, at the time I was looking in the first instance at a Jamaican poet named Lorna Goodison. And uh, reading her work, uh, it became increasingly clear to me that I couldn't make sense of what she was doing without the context of Bob Marley's music. Hmm. Uh, he he was a profound influence on a generation, not just of other Jamaican musicians, but Jamaican poets and other Jamaican writers. Hmm. So in some ways, he a, a truly seminal figure. Um, and, you know, since his death, almost um, a religious figure. Hmm. So uh, in the first instance, I was I, I became interested in, in his lyrics, particularly uh, as they speak to, as you say, Rastafari. And uh, I, I keep carrying that through. I, even this semester, I was teaching a course on music and politics, and inevitably, Bob Marley and the language of Rastafari uh, became a key component in that course. Yeah, excellent. And listeners, um, you can't see us, but I can now see the uh, Marlon James book I referenced on the bookshelf behind me. <laughs> um, that was not. Yes, it, it's it's a terrific book. Um, one of those books that. Uh, if I'm being really honest with myself, I may never read again because mm. it's it's quite a traumatizing book. It is. But uh, for a book that is so difficult, the fact mm. that it keeps you compelled for, what, 400, 500 pages, mm. you just can't turn away from it. It's, it's a really impressive uh, piece of work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Hugh, your last answer uh, reminded me, um, I had a lot of poet and writer friends who were angry when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize uh, for literature, uh, do you think that uh, song lyrics should be considered as literary works? A uh, fairly loaded question, given that I've just written a book based on the assumption that song lyrics can be taken as a, as a form of uh, not just poetry, but history. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I, I, I think uh, complaining that because Bob Marley's uh, poetry happens to be sung uh, that it isn't uh, poetry it is a form of madness mm-hmm. um, the, the oldest poetry we have was sung yeah um, yeah absolutely I, I agree with you um, and, and had a lot of 
passionate arguments with my friends when that happened. Well, um, let's now dive into this excellent new book, The Fascist Groove Thing. Uh, In your introduction, you write that music has always been seen and described as entertainment, but its largest secondary characteristic is that of unifier. Can you unpack this statement for our listeners, Hugh? I I will try, but to be clear, that's actually Dick Lucas. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Dick Dick wrote a a forward. Now, Dick Lucas is the lead singer of several... um, uh, to me, terribly important bands from the 80s. Yes. His first band was Subhumans, right. uh, a uh, punk band who moved in the anarcho-punk milieu. And then uh, he started a band called uh, uh, Crisis. No, mm-hmm. hang on. Culture Shock. Sorry. Yep. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And and then uh, latterly uh, Citizen Fish. All three bands uh, are now sort of uh, circulating with interlocked uh, members. But Dick Lucas um, is w- one of those figures who's, as as a lyricist, I won't I won't say a singer because I'm not sure what uh, Dick has uh, d- ever done is sing. He, he enunciates, mm-hmm. he vociferates, yes. um, but his his lyrics are witty and sharp and profound and silly and and all of the things that that I admire in in poetry, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, he was good enough to write this uh, this forward, and yes. Um, uh, re- repeat for me well, what it is I meant to be unpacking, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. The statement that um, music has always been seen and described as entertainment, but its largest secondary characteristic is that of unifier. That, that as a unifier, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a great deal of cultural theory about this, of course. Uh, all, all of the theory around uh, uh, subcultures and fashion and and. Uh, 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 teenagehood and youth cultures uh, is is built on this proposition that m- music is is the key to uh, what what's ho- what holds these groups together and identifies them, mm-hmm. and you can see it play out in the clashes between these youth subcultures, mm-hmm. uh, rockers and mods in the '60s clashing on the beats of, beaches of Brighton, um, punks and skinheads and uh, other groups. Uh, uh, fighting over uh, uh, lyrical and band turf in the 80s. It, 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 it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, what I try to do in this book is um, connect or unify, as Dick, Dick puts it, mm-hmm. uh, all of these uh, subcultural groups uh, under the umbrella of resistance to the grey drabness of, of Thatcher's Britain. Mm. And that's what Dick is sort of referring to is is, is the way I um, pull together bands and artists from a, a, a wide variety of scenes at the time uh, in a way that nobody deeply invested in one of those scenes would have done. There's, yeah. there's too much invested in identity for it. For, uh, one of the things that Dick points out in his introduction is that there are things in the book that he was oblivious to at the time. Because he was so deeply invested in the the anarcho punk scene that he really wasn't paying an awful lot of attention <laughs> to what a synth pop was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but in retrospect, uh, I'm trying to draw these together um, and and unify across those scenes. Absolutely, not trying to. You did uh, very successfully, in my opinion. Um, but Hugh, many of our listeners are both too young and too American 
uh, to know much about Margaret Thatcher. Um, can you give us kind of a synopsis of who she was, what role she played in the government, and why she was such a divisive figurehead? I will attempt to. This is the 32nd version of, of Margaret <laughs> Thatcher. Uh -huh. uh, Margaret Thatcher became the leader of the Conservative Party in Britain in the mid-1970s. And at that time, although the Conservative Party and the Labour Party were obviously on the uh, uh, right side and the left side of the political spectrum, they were both basically centrist parties. And the centre was considerably further left of where we imagine centre to be now. Mm -hmm. uh, Britain was very much a welfare state, heavily invested in the idea that the government had a major role to play in governing the economy, controlling and, and managing the economy, um, and in uh, ensuring the safety and welfare of its citizens. By the mid-70s, though, uh, there were there was a great deal of pressure on those assumptions about what government can and should do, largely economic pressure. Uh, inflation was uh, rising rapidly. Uh, the unions, uh, who had been responsible for so much of what was good about British society, were becoming increasingly an object of antagonism because they seemed to be looking out only for their members rather than society, while having a very strong influence on the government. So uh, Thatcher and the Conservatives uh, in the mid-70s started to speak to those dissatisfactions, coincidentally at the same time that the first wave of punks were speaking to the same kinds of dissatisfactions about a welfare society that expected you to work the same factory job for your whole life um, and obey the rules and, and, uh, and just get along with people. Hmm. Uh, in 1979, in the winter of 1979, uh, the Labour Party had a very bad year in government. There were a series of very, very disruptive strikes at various points. Virtually the whole country was on strike. And you, you, you can picture the, the garbage piling up and the trains not running and so on and so forth. Uh, exacerbated by the fact that so many of the industries in Britain were nationalised so that uh, a strike against the government really did bring the government uh, government and the country to a grinding halt. Uh, in the 1979 election, Thatcher uh, and the Conservatives swept, really swept uh, the Labour Party out of power. And Thatcher arrived with an agenda to dismantle the welfare state. She very famously said, there's no such thing as society. It's a quotation often taken out of context, but even in context, she meant it. <laughs> she really did mean that the business of government isn't society. It's not looking after people. It's just making sure that business can do its business. Mm -hmm. And that was her agenda. So dismantling the welfare state, selling off the nationalized industries, um, selling off uh, the, the country's shared commonwealth of uh, council housing, um, uh, opening up uh, everything to private enterprise. Mm. The immediate consequence of this was an almost total economic collapse, <laughs> uh, particularly in the North, where industries that had been subsidized partly to maintain employment were suddenly, suddenly had the plug pulled and uh, entire communities uh, found not just their way of, of making a living, but their way of life 
taken away from them. So uh, very rapidly, um, Thatcher became identified with this series of economic policies uh, that became identified as Thatcherism. And Thatcherism uh, can be, be very uh, correctly blamed for very, very hard times in the north of England, particularly through the entire 1980s. Um, arguably, the country has never recovered. Right. Thank you, uh, Hugh, for that synopsis. Um, so now there's this song, uh, We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thing uh, by Heaven 17. The BBC wouldn't play it. Uh, <laughs> why would the BBC not play it, Hugh? And do you think that the BBC would make a similar decision, say, in uh, 2019 uh, when Donald Trump was the president or um, Boris Johnson was in power uh, in the UK? <laughs> The, as well, I, to preface, the BBC is is pretty heavy-handed with its decisions to to censor things, um, and it's never it's not a sort of government mandated mandated suppress this song, remove it from the record stores. It's just we're not going to play it because we don't think it's good for people. Mm. Uh, so during the Falklands War, for example, all kinds of songs that had nothing to do with with the Falklands War. Um, but uh, might demoralize or upset people uh, were banned for the duration, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the banning of, uh, or banning may even be the wrong word. It's the word we always use for what the, the BBC does when it doesn't want to play a song. But the, the not playing of the fascist groove thing really was, as I say a bit facetiously in the book, because it's just impolite mm -hmm. to draw a direct line from Adolf Hitler to Ronald Reagan, which mm -hmm. is what that song does, right. uh, while also pointing to uh, uh, various other kinds of fascistic behavior that were emerging in the United States and in Britain at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, whether the BBC would uh, ban a song drawing a direct line from <laughs> Adolf Hitler to, to Donald Trump, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'd like to think not, perhaps. <laughs> I would like uh, it. that they do still ban stuff. They do still refuse to play stuff. Interesting. Well, um, thank you. My, you're giving me some ammunition for a conversation I was having with my wife the other night comparing um, NPR with BBC. Um, so I appreciate that. And we will talk more about this later. But first, listeners, we're going to pause here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Hugh Hodges. Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Hugh Hodges, author of The Fascist Groove Thing, a history of Thatcher's Britain in 21 mixtapes, which is published by our friends at PM Press. And by the way, Hugh, um, 
at my bookstore, Explore Booksellers in Aspen, Colorado. We have staff meetings every morning where we talk about what we're reading. And my colleague, Tony, says, I'm glad they're finally uh, calling her a fascist, even though that's not what the title is doing exactly. But that's the impression that, that he not, took. Not exactly, but I, I do adore the cover image. Absolutely. Uh, which, which very subtly implies that Margaret Thatcher is is uh, giving a Nazi salute. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's a very good cover. Um, but Hugh, uh, speaking of your title, what is a mixtape and how many people in 2023 are aware of what a mixtape is, do you think? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, for those for for those of you too young to have grown up with the mixtape, it was a currency. It was uh, how we wooed one another it was how we explained ourselves to one another. Um, we would we would make a mixtape by uh, selecting tracks off our LPs and mixing them onto a, a cassette tape, and then um, uh, saying, "I made this tape for you," and and hope that the song spoke for us. Um, I I really liked the idea of uh, juxtaposing something. Uh, as uh, transient, as ephemeral, as uh, a homemade mixtape, with that big H word history, right? Um, and and su suggesting that you know these these bits of ephemera uh, are there telling a, a version of the history of the 1980s, just as surely as all of these big histories of the period that are starting to emerge do. Absolutely. And does a mixtape or a mix CD uh, translate? Um, to a playlist that one would sort of create on a service like Spotify or Apple Music and then email to someone as a link? Um, yes or no, and why or why not? <laughs> so um, not quite. Uh, I did, in fact, try to make Spotify uh, playlists um, based on the the, the mixtapes, the notional mixtapes that start each chapter in the book. Mm. And an awful lot of the things I refer to simply aren't on Spotify. Mm. Um, apparently, there there isn't uh, a big market on Spotify for a, a narco punk from the, the mid 1980s, or some of the truly indie stuff that finds its way in, into the annals of uh, the, the fascist groove thing. Mm. Um, the the other big difference between mixtapes and Spotify is uh, ease of use. Spotify makes it easy, makes it too easy for someone of my generation. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, for my generation, part of what made mixtapes or cassette tapes in general so uh, profoundly empowering in a way mm -hmm. was that they were an, an alternative medium. Mm -hmm. There was a big network in the UK, at least, uh, of free music where you would send a blank tape to the band uh, with a self-addressed stamped envelope, and they'd copy their home-recorded album onto it and send it back to you. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was a whole medium outside of the music industry, and a genuinely autonomous music scene. Now, the music was mostly ghastly. <laughs> I mean, recorded, in some cases, on those little tiny cassette decks mm -hmm. uh, by people sitting around a kitchen table. But it was it was it was free and it was it was autonomous, mm. um, and that sense of the cassette tape as existing outside as a form of pirate radio uh, was very strong all through the eighties, 
Um, it's something that uh, Bow Wow Wow, uh, Malcolm McLaren's project after the Sex Pistols celebrated with, with the song C30, C60, C90, mm-hmm. um, a, a song ab- about cassette piracy, which is what the music industry was terrified of at that time. And this is long before they were terrified of Napster and, and then uh, streaming and, and whatever else. The, the music industry always has something to be terrified of. And in the late 70s, early 80s, it was cassette tapes. Uh, so hearkening back to that in the title is, is also part of the point of uh, a history of Thatcher's Britain and 21 mixtapes. Not 21 songs, not 21 albums, mm-hmm. uh, but 21 mixtapes, those things from from outside the legitimate music industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, quite famously, 2022 was the first year in uh, decades that vinyl records outsold CDs. Um as official sales as vinyl is making a comeback. Do you think that um, this has already happened a little bit, but not nearly on the scale of vinyl. Do you think cassettes are next? Are they going to be next in the kind of uh, cycle of um, nostalgia? I would be very surprised. Mm. Um, I, I, I can see the, the appeal of it. And there is something about the sound of a cassette tape. Mm. Uh, I have still a cassette tape on which in, Oh, perhaps 1982. Mm-hmm. I recorded several uh, songs from a college radio show. Mm-hmm. Uh, some B-52s and, uh, oh, I can't remember what else is on there. Um, but uh, no other copy of that music that I've ever had has sounded as good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just something about uh, the... the uh, fuzzy warmth of that particular cassette tape that is very appealing. But broadly, uh, cassette tapes just don't have the audio quality that vinyl has. And it and uh, the commodity fetish of vinyl, quite aside, it really is the, um, the sound of vinyl and that big album cover that is uh, such a pleasure to spend time with that's drive, I think is driving uh, the resurrection of, of vinyl. And you don't get, you, you don't get that with cassettes in the same way. Um, part of what drove cassette culture was the Walkman. Yeah. Uh, it was the first time you could walk around with your music in your ears mm-hmm. and that's not coming back. And uh, right. no, no, no one is, is reissuing the Walkman. Right. Um, right. Yeah, my, um, you know, my friends at School Kids Records in uh, Raleigh and Chapel Hill, North Carolina, um, they are buying um, used cassettes for a good price because I guess all of the kids at um, UNC, Duke, NC State, etc., all the young adults, I should say, are buying them uh, to record over them <laughs> um, uh-huh. know, on, on four-track recorders, etc. So there's something going on there, maybe hearkening yeah. back to the old uh, model you speak of where um, yeah. folks are recording their albums around their kitchen table. And and there are DJs who swear by cassettes, right? So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, um, Hugh. You make a comment uh, in this book that after Human Leagues, "Don't You Want Me" was number one for five weeks in a row. This band, Heaven Seventeen, um, from your title, uh, it knocked all the interesting edges off of their music because they were attempting to emulate uh, Human Leagues' success. And my question for you is: Why do artists? do this Hugh why do people change their sound to emulate something else uh that's on the radio 
Uh, if, I, if I were an artist, I'd know, I'm sure. Uh, in, in the case of Heaven 17, I, I, I think it, it's one of the very few instances in the book where I actually make a value judgment about the, the, the music I'm talking about. Yeah. Largely, I don't, because it's simply not the point. Mm-hmm. The, the whole point is that it was the sheer volume of this body of work critiquing Thatcher and Thatcherism mm-hmm. that that matters in retrospect, not whether this particular song was better than that particular song or whether mm-hmm. this band sold out and this band didn't. Mm-hmm. In the case of Heaven 17, um, I do think there was a basic kind of competitiveness with Human League. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the members of Heaven 17 uh, were the original members, or two of the three were original members of, of Human League, mm-hmm. uh, and as the Human League uh, with Phil Oakley, they uh, released several very interesting um, and commercially totally unsuccessful songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the reason I suggest in the book is you're never really going to have a smash hit with a song called "Being Boiled." Mm-hmm. It's, it just doesn't it doesn't have a, uh, a top ten uh, title, mm-hmm. but. Uh, have, um, the fascist, we don't need this fascist groove thing. Was a hit. It made the top forty, yep. um, and they had another a couple of other uh, top forty songs. Mm-hmm. But uh, Human League, uh, without the the experimental impulses of Heaven Seventeen, uh, were dominant. They they just ruled the 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 the, the top ten for for several years, mm-hmm. um, and you know, never having interviewed uh, any members of. Heaven 17, I can't say this definitively, but I would imagine that rankled. As you, you leave a band because you don't think it's going anywhere and you're, you're, you're going to do something bigger and better. And, and the, the folks you left behind go off into the stratosphere without you. It, it must have been very irritating. Mm-hmm. So I think in that instance, that there was an impulse to, to get back into the top 10. Yeah. Um, more broadly, though, and more sympathetically, um, uh, I think... You could see this in the clash too, that you start out being angry and determined to make a point, mm-hmm. and after a while, you really just kind of want to have some fun. Um, and I, I think that's f- fair enough. Um, it's it's a hard living. <laughs> it's a it's a rotten way to make a living being being an artist, mm-hmm. um, and anything you can do to have some fun doing it is, is worth doing. And uh, I, I have immense admiration for those punk bands who are still out there doing it the hard way. Mm-hmm. In some cases, you're 40 years later, still pushing that rock up the hill. Um, we'd be lost without them, but um, uh, they are all mad, completely bonkers. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a good segue into this um, next question. Um, I'm the type of person, you know, I get very obsessed with music and I, you know, follow bands down rabbit holes, etc., and try to look into their pasts. Um, but one band that I never did this with is Chumbawamba. Um, <laughs> the first mixtape in your book titled The Grocer's Daughter features a track by Chumbawamba. Um, is this the same uh, band of tub thumping fame? And what were they up to in 1986 with this track, <laughs> Rock and Rolls? Tub thumping. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Chumbawamba are the perfect example of a band um, that exists in North America on the basis of one song. And their entire identity is is based on that one song, uh, and 
exists completely differently in the UK. Another good example is Madness. Mm -hmm. I think they had one one hit in North America, Our House. Mm -hmm. Um, In Britain, they were and remain an institution. Uh, but yes, Chumbawamba, uh, if you'd only ever heard Tub Thumping, you'd think of them as a, a somewhat annoying early 90s kind of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they had been writing um, very political songs in a variety of genres uh, for the better part of a decade at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, uh, Boff Wally uh, of Chumbawamba, who uh, provides the, the afterword for the fascist groove thing. His most recent work with his group called Commoners Choir has been choral. Um, not not uh, dull old medieval choral work, but it, it's choral and highly political and very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I strongly recommend you go down that particular rabbit hole at your earliest convenience. Yes. Uh, but yes, Ch- uh, Chumbawamba had been um, uh, very earnestly eking out a living uh, in music, uh, uh, operating in the anarcho-punk scene, uh, using that uh, circuit, that network of uh, homemade demo tapes uh, and selling them at gigs and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what happened with Tub Thumping is uh, they read the manual Now, the manual was something put out by KLF. Uh, As the Time Lords, they'd had a massive hit with a song called uh, Doctor in the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. And they had a couple of other huge hits. And then they put out this manual explaining in the the most punk way possible, the easy way to have a top 10 hit. Mm -hmm. This is the formula. This is how easy it is. And I think Chumbawamba uh, looked at that and said, yeah, we can do that. Mm-hmm. and did they used the formula they put out uh tub thumping um and then you used the the proceeds from that to fund all kinds of uh, uh anti-establishment activities um they I, I i'm gonna butcher this story but i'm pretty sure uh tub thumping got used in a car commercial at some point mm-hmm. um and then they they used the money uh raised by that to um uh, to fund uh, various anti-car industry <laughs> protests, I, I have I have definitely butchered that story because I'm only remembering it faintly. But yeah. uh, that, that's the that's the the, the kind of band that Chumbawamba were. They were an anarchist collective. Um, they were profoundly politically committed. And actually, if you listen to the rest of that album uh, that has that song on it, it is a profoundly political album. Um, yeah, the image of them as uh, that one song is very, very misleading. Absolutely. Thank you, Hugh. Finally, um, a lot of musicians were calling Margaret Thatcher out by name in their songs. Um, artists in 2023, especially American artists, don't tend to do that, to call politicians out by name. Um, you know, I think maybe the last... Uh, prominent musicians I can even think of that were doing this um, regularly or maybe Rage Against the Machine. Uh, Mm -hmm. But why do you think this is, Hugh? And do you think musicians should be calling politicians out by name? I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think the the reason it doesn't happen as often as you might expect is, uh, or let me turn that around, the reason it happened in Britain in the 80s is because 
Thatcher was so closely and personally associated with the policies that, in fact, took her name, Thatcherism. Mm -hmm. So she became a really uh, convenient and um, uh, precise target uh, as shorthand for all of the policies, all of the, the government activities that uh, were affecting particularly young people and particularly young people in the North. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a surprise that you don't get songs about uh, uh, Tony Blair or Gordon Brown uh, or Bill Clinton or um, uh, 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 or re- re- as you say, really anyone. Right. Um, uh, because uh, government is so diffuse, uh, it, it's not. It's very rarely one person who becomes personally identified w- with an in, entire uh, uh, government policy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Hugh, and thank you for writing this wonderful book. I can't wait to get it into our listeners' hands. Listeners, I've been speaking with Hugh Hodges, author of the fascist groove theme, a history of Thatcher's Britain in 21 mixtapes, which is published by our friends at PM Press. Hugh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Hugh Hodges for joining me. Copies of the fascist groove theme can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.